Back in December, I had the chance to interview Nate Hoffelder, who writes about the book publishing industry on the Digital Reader website. I've been following Nate's work for a couple of years now and really looked forward to our conversation, where we covered a lot of ground, including issues concerning Kindle Unlimited, media coverage of book sales data, and the question of whether authors should put all their eggs in one distribution basket. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, this is Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the LeanPub Back Matter Publishing Industry Podcast, I'll be talking with Nate Hoffelder. Based in the Washington, D.C. metro area, Nate is a book publishing industry expert and consultant who works with authors by solving their tech problems and providing a comprehensive array of WordPress services and support. Nate manages the brand The Digital Reader, which was formerly a tech blog focusing on documenting developments and delivering commentary on the rise of e-readers and the digital revolution generally. Today, The Digital Reader is a hub for news on current affairs in the publishing industry and technology and is aimed at a global readership. You can find The Digital Reader at the-digital-reader.com, and you can follow it on Twitter at InkBitsPixels. And you can follow Nate on Twitter at The Digital Reader, uh, minus the E and the, uh, which I highly recommend as Nate is one of the most entertaining and opinionated voices out there on publishing and related matters and just, you know, very funny. Um, you can also find out more about Nate's work at ValiantChickenDigital.com. Uh, in this interview, we're going to talk about Nate's career, his work on The Digital Reader, the big changes in the publishing world Nate has written about over the years, and what might be coming in the future. So thank you, Nate, for being on the Back Matter podcast. It's good to be, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Len. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their um, origin story, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, where you're from and how you became interested in books and digital publishing. Where I'm from, that's a little complicated. I got interested... Oh, I've always been into books. I've always read science fiction. And I got into reading e-books in the middle aughts when we had to either load them onto a PDA, pound PDA or uh, had to buy a Sony reader. I got into, you know, writing about e-books and, and you know, news around the digital publishing industry in about 2006, 2007 when I was a member of Mobile Read Forums. We were all we were busy speculating about the Kindle, and I was you know looking for news on the Kindle, sharing related digital publishing stories. And uh, when the, after the Kindle launched in late 2007, um, they brought me on as moderator. So I was one of the few people who had one at the time, and I turned that into a position as their news editor. And eventually, um, then you know early 2010. I decided to go out on my own and start a news blog. And um, I gather from LinkedIn that you um, studied computer science in university. Um, yes. Uh, was that uh, part of a, a long-standing interest in technology and software? Well, I, wanted, I thought I wanted to be a programmer, but eventually I realized it just wasn't for me. It's not my profession I wanted. It turned out I'm much better at finding news and reporting on news. So I turned. I took the training I picked up in, at the university and you know, turned it sideways. And can you talk a little bit about the work that you do um, for authors? Well, I mainly build websites. I also do tech support. I can help authors find the, figure out why their site is going down or um, why it's so down and so on and so forth. I've been doing my own tech support for eight years and now I help others. Um, as, you, as you indicated just a moment ago, um, you were there from the beginning of the release of the Kindle and we've now uh, just passed its... Uh, 10-year anniversary, um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, what it was like when the Kindle came out, what it was like to um, use it in, in contrast to other devices. You said you, you started out with um, personal digital assistance, probably, I would guess, you know, quite a few years before that. 
what was what was the impact of the Kindle like on on you? Honestly, wasn't a huge impact. I mean, it was a neat toy, and it had a number of features it didn't that you can find on, find on anything else. But I really only used that first Kindle for maybe three, four months before I discovered, um, you know, Mobile Pocket and how you could run Mobile Pocket on older Windows CE mobile devices. So the, the cool thing about um, the mobile devices then is that Windows CE was essentially a cut-down version of Windows. And so you could have almost the, the same features of a desktop OS in a possible device, which was pretty amazing in 2007. So what I did was I you know, started with Kindle, and then I discovered other devices to read on, and then I started sharing details about the devices I was reading on. And I think that's a good part of what I ended up with the blog. Um, one thing that uh, people might not remember is that a few years ago, um, Amazon came out with a phone. Um, speaking of other devices for reading besides a Kindle, um, the reasons for Amazon building it were pretty obvious, um, including the fact that whenever you buy something from an app on the iPhone, for example, 30% of your money goes to Apple, which is why you can't buy books uh, in the Amazon app on your phone. Um, and I was wondering what your thoughts are about why Amazon failed with its phone, which was um, it ceased production just over a year after it was launched. Um, it was a really expensive phone, and they couldn't have, didn't have a really good reason why anyone would buy it or why you'd want to use those six cameras. But they, it was just, you know, really cool, but then what? There's, no one had an answer, and so no one really bought it, and eventually it was discontinued. Yeah, can you, um, can you talk a little bit about those, those, all those cameras and what Amazon was going for with that? Well, they had this, actually it was pretty cool, but they had you know, the usual front and rear cameras, and they also had four cameras on the corners of the um, phone's face. Uh, apparently, the cameras were used to do things like um, recognize products, uh, detect when you turned and tilted the, um, you know, tilted the phone, or recognize face. I don't know. It's been a few years since I used, used a fire phone. Mine's in a box somewhere. <laughs> um, I know that one of the uh, cameras and identifying things are actually a really important part of Amazon's at least declared strategy going forward for some of its uh, stores. Um, it's talked in the past about how it wants to set up technology so that you can just walk into the store, pick up whatever you want, and walk out with it. And Amazon, Amazon will automatically know, you know who you are, take payment from you, and take payment from you only for the things um, that you've picked up and walked out with. Um, since you've got your finger on the pulse of these kinds of announcements, have you heard anything about about that recently or about its potential success? I haven't heard anything recently, no. I'm, I'm still not convinced it's going to succeed. Why is that? Yeah, well, the all the recognition technology is a lot better than it used to be, but being able to see... Yeah, the tech just isn't just is not there yet for doing things like recognizing someone the, day, the moment they walk into a store, recording what they're buying, and then you know billing them for it. Might be there in five years, but we're we're not at that point yet. And um, do you think it's something that people would would? I mean, let's let's say let's say um, you know tomorrow it was announced, it's all working and it's perfect. Um, do you think it's something that uh, people would adopt quickly, or would they perhaps be concerned just about general privacy issues? 
I think the driving point would be the cost of labor. I mean, if you know minimum wage keeps going up, then everyone in the, the stores will adopt it just because it'll be cheaper. But as for whether consumers will adopt it, I don't know. It's it's hard to predict. I mean, stores are driven by you know basic financial um, needs. Consumers are driven by fickle desires. That's hard to. It's much harder to predict. Um, I've got some questions about uh, bookstores and their bottom lines that I want to ask you in a few minutes. Um, but before moving on, I have a couple more questions about digital reading. Um, one of which is that um, I think that when digital readers started being introduced, there was a lot of um, speculation that people would be reading um, multimedia content in their eBooks, um, and this doesn't really seem to have happened do you have any thoughts about about that i mean and or and and you know contradict me if i'm wrong please no it hasn't happened um the problem is consumers we actually hear something about this every two or three years where someone comes up with another great idea i mean it's the one that i really thought was going to change everything was blio which in 2009 2010 was supposed to be a competitor with kindle platform they're going after they were going to offer all these neat multimedia features that you couldn't find elsewhere. And then about six months later, Amazon added them to the Kindle. <laughs> or, well, the Kindle apps on the iPad. But still, um, why didn't it go anywhere? I, hmm. I would have to say that it didn't go anywhere because the tech one um, was being invented before the, the artist form had been invented. I mean, people are reading the same you know, books they were reading hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Um, just you know, text on a page, only instead of a page, now it's text on a screen. Multimedia books look cool, yes, but it's... I'm, I'm stumbling on this answer. Sorry. Oh no, that's that's fine. It's a it's a it's a tough one. Um, uh, again, because you know there there are so many people who who sort of seem to want it, but it didn't really take off. Um, I think. I mean, my you know my opinion about it, and it's just an opinion, is probably somewhat along the lines of what you were expressing, which is that you know a mul- uh, a thing with multimedia content just isn't a book. Um, uh, and I don't mean that as a c- condemnation of it, um, but it's just that trying to present something as a book invokes, you know, a kind of a lot of very deep seated expectations in people. And they just, you know, they, they like, we obviously love consuming video and multimedia content all the time, but just the sort of, you know, don't intersect. Yeah. The videos gone so much, so heavily digital now that it's, um, I think even DVDs are starting to uh, die off in favor of streaming and download a video. And yet, Video is still a very distinct form of content from, um, you know, ebooks. The two never really cross. It is odd. Yeah, yeah. Um, what actually I, I wanted to ask you, um, what uh, what's your favorite? Um, actually, not not that I'm asking for you to endorse anything, but what what's your what's the, you know, digital device you use for reading books most these days? It really depends on what I have with me. Right now, it's either my Fire tablet or. Uh, a cheap Android smartphone. Yeah, but for a while there, I was reading on a giant 13.3-inch um, e-reader from Onyx 
but I was, I was during a period where I was having trouble with, uh, you know, looking at LCD screens, so I switched to only using eating screens for as, mu- as much like reading as I could. I mean, it was a, that was a great device for reading late night in bed because I could just prop it up and turn the page every two, three minutes because I had so much text on the screen. But it's not a very, wasn't a very good e-reader otherwise. Um, speaking of speaking of bookstores, as we were just a few moments ago, um, what are your thoughts on what Amazon's up to with its physical bookstores? You you write about this, you know. I think every time they open up a new one, um, what do you think they're aiming to do? Well, I, at first I thought it was they just wanted the data, but now they have like sixteen stores official, and one that's and another one in Atlanta. And I'm beginning to wonder if maybe they really are going to have the four hundred bookstores that we heard in that rumor. I think they're actually moving into physical retail, just like everyone thought they would, you know, years and years ago. Huh. So you so you think that these um, uh, are you suggesting that potentially these bookstores might end up being um, uh, including non-book uh, stuff, or just that this is just one one arm uh, a book, no, I think the book arm of you know physical retail? I think it's just going to be straight books and closely related products, but. It's hard to predict. I'm looking forward to Amazon opening up their um, the George store in Georgetown, which I'll finally be able to visit. It'll be the first time I've been in an Amazon bookstore. And do you think um, uh, that this represents a threat to independent bookstores? Um, you wrote just this morning a story, I believe, a story about how independent bookstores seem to be experiencing a, a revival lately. I don't, because... Amazon stores are, you know, well, maybe. It's a hard question to answer because most of Amazon stores are too small for, you know, to help do things like hold events. But then there's this store in Chicago, which I understand has an event space inside. And the real reason I don't think they're a threat to um, independent bookstores is that Amazon's bookstores are all, you know, small enough that they're strictly commercial spaces. They're not event spaces. While independent bookstores are frequently... Um, some type of mixed-use uh, store, say it's a restaurant, bar, and bookstore, or it's a bookstore which makes a strong effort to hold events like readings and author signings and so on. They're trying to bring the community into the store, and which is something that Amazon isn't doing yet with their stores. Yes, that's actually really interesting that you invoked um, the sort of mixed-use stores. Um, you wrote recently about uh, the Canadian company Indigo has uh, expanded into the U.S. Um, and you wrote, oh, that's okay. Um, and you wrote, um, quote, Indigo is a post-bookstore chain. They call themselves a cultural department store and attribute their success to growing sales of throw pillows, tchotchkes, and other general merchandise, end quote. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, is that, is that a good development that, um, you know, f- for the publishing industry that, companies like Indigo are starting to sell other things in their stores and maybe even, you know, moving towards a place where books are going to be just a minority of what they sell. I don't know if it's a good thing for the publishing industry, but it's, you know, Indigo's real goal is to, you know, continue to make money and continue to employ people. And it's good for Indigo, at least. It's probably going to lead to them selling fewer books. So it's probably not a good thing for the publishing industry, though. Yeah, I think it's something that um, people can often be, um, uh, people who are really into books can often be a little bit 
um, sarcastic about. But as you say, you know, these companies have to watch their, just have to watch their bottom line. Um, and, you know, they're trying new things. Um, uh, speaking of, uh, you mentioned restaurants, um, and I wanted to ask you about Barnes & Noble, about which there seems to be sort of, you know, you know, a kind of, you know, steady drip of not so good news. Um, uh, they recently announced they were closing a store, I believe in San Jose, um, that I read about on your, one of your posts, uh, because the rent is just so high there. Um, what do you think we're going to be seeing from Barnes and Noble in the next, I mean, I'm not necessarily asking you to, to predict, but, um, uh, you know, like there's been recent talk, not necessarily all that credible about an activist investor leading a movement to take Barnes and Noble private. Um, it, it Barnes and Noble just plays such an important role uh, for at least American book publishers. Uh, where do you see it heading? Down and leading to an eventual um, surprise bankruptcy. And then someone's going to buy it and maybe revive it or maybe just sell it off for parts. And um, why do you think the Nook, their 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 e-reader, uh, failed? I don't know. I mean, it's the part that this question has always, you know, bugged me because it was doing great right up until holiday season. I think what 2012. Then after the holiday season, it imploded. Or was that holiday season 2013? But it was really doing great to that the one holiday season, and then boom, it was dead. I've wondered if perhaps. Uh, I wondered if perhaps Barnes and Noble had, mis- had you know, shot itself in the foot by closing down fiction-wise and driving away people, and that just offended readers, and so they went and bought somewhere else. But I don't know how many people actually use fiction-wise, so that might, might be entirely unrelated. It is fascinating, though, the way, the way you know they've never been able to revive Nook, because you think they would have found a solution by now, but weird. Yeah, it's uh, it. It, uh, it it's always puzzled me. Um, uh, on that note, um, you wrote recently about uh, Pearson, I believe, um, making a move with one of its services um, to uh, basically, you know, delete everybody's books and cancel the service, if I if I recall it correctly, um, and they were partly doing this I believe that that because they were sort of moving away from the DRM free nature of that service. Um is that is that what happened there? Essentially. Actually I think it's better to say they just stopped selling ebooks entirely. Because hmm. theoretically they would have been able to if they wanted to keep selling ebooks only use DRM, theoretically they could have, you know, copied everyone's accounts and then moved them sideways and let you download a DRM ebook, but now they decided just to drop them entirely. And do you think that, you know, from a high level, it's um, a good idea for companies like, say, Amazon, or if they're in the ebook business, Pearson, to put books, you know, to, to use DRM? I can say it's a good idea or a bad idea. Um, can't say that it has any net positive, though, but removing it also doesn't have a net, net positive, so kind of a wash. So remember, Macmillan tested it with Tor Forge Books, and so far as I know, Torforge is the only one that has actually gone DRM-free of Macmillan you know, imprints. And on the other hand, 
there's Poland where the market is almost entirely DM free because they want they need to support the Kindle and Amazon won't support them. And so all the sellers there are selling DRM free ebooks. In and it seems to be working for them. Oh that's interesting. Yes, yeah, it seems it seems to be working for them, so Huh. That's interesting. I'll look to see if I can find some articles about that, put some links in the transcription of this interview. Um uh speaking of Macmillan, um about a year and a half ago, I think it was announced that they bought this ebook distribution service called Pronoun, um, that many of our listeners have probably heard of and maybe even maybe even used. Um, and recently, Pronoun announced that it was going to cease operations. Um, I was wondering if, for the benefit of our listeners, you could talk a little bit about what Pronoun was, you know, how it became what it became when it was purchased by Macmillan. And why it was so oh. important to its constituency of, of authors that used it. Oh, Pronoun was an odd company. I mean, both for its history and for the services it was offering when it was shut down. The thing about Pronoun is that it got a start in 2009 when it was called Vuk. And at the time, it was a publisher of enhanced ebook apps for the iPad and the iPhone. Yeah, this was you know before the iBooks app. And so... They had the bright idea that they're going to do things like selling an enhanced copy of uh, Sherlock Holmes. Then in 2009, the company, you know, expanded to making similar enhanced ebooks for a Kindle um, app on the iPad, for iBooks, and so on and so forth. Then they pivoted to um, making those apps enhanced ebooks for um, other people. Then they pivoted to distributing enhanced ebooks. Then they just pivoted to distributing ebooks, and then they reformed into Pronoun. Yeah. yeah, it's a company that's that is one company that you know encompasses all the ideas that don't work in digital publishing. Uh, can you got, can you expand on that a little bit? What what do you mean by that? Well, they, every year to eighteen months, they pivoted to a new idea, and from you know making original content, then making other people's original content, then distributing content. And then eventually they reorganized to Proton, Pronoun, sorry, and they were going to distribute the content effectively for free and pay authors all the money. And then they got bought up by Macmillan and continued to operate before eventually shutting down. It's it's an odd little comp- it's an odd company. It, um, my, my current thinking is that Pronoun, not sorry, my current thinking is that Macmillan. What a pronoun for the tech, not so much for the service, which is what it looked like at first. Because Macmillan, sorry, keep getting the names mixed up. Pronoun does, did have a number of interesting like, you know, tech, including an automatic ebook former that worked great. Uh, uh, you know, platform management system that also that some authors told me was pretty nifty, and you know, analytics that I suppose Macmillan was also interested in. Yeah, that's so we uh, that, no, no, that's that's um, that's uh, that's interesting. So it 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 may have been something that they ultimately wanted as more or less a kind of aqua hire, anyway, and they just thought they'd give it a shot to see if it would get any traction or become profitable in some way or or just you know see what might play out. Yes. Um, another service um, that that happened to a couple of years ago now. Uh, was Oyster, and if you can if you can recall that story, I was wondering if you could tell tell people about that and what happened with them because that was a really interesting uh, effort 
um, on the part of some sort of tech savvy people to set up a business. Mm. I forget the year it started, but Oyster, along with Scribd, were one of the two companies that were going to challenge um, the dominance of the Kindle. These two companies offered a, a unlimited subscription reading service where you could read as many ebooks as you wanted. Scribd managed to hang on because they were international and they eventually cut back on their service. But Oyster, Oyster was U.S.-based and they started out with supporting just, um, you know, iPhone and iPad. And I guess they just ran through all their money with um, with an idea that just didn't work out, and eventually sold out to the to Google. Google, as far as I know, Google has never done anything publicly with the stuff they bought from Oyster, but they probably just all this tech was probably just behind the scenes somehow. Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't seen anything anything public that they've done with that with that either. Um, I've, I've... But really, really though, it's not that isn't Google's first ebook hire. They also, um, I think, 2010, I think, or is it 2011? Google bought ETI, you know, Ebook Technologies Incorporated, and they never did anything visible with that. But eventually, I guess they just used the tech in you know the, the Google Play books. And what did ETI do? Well, it was, um, I'm, I don't know, that's kind of a hard question. I know that they they developed the software running on the eBook Wise 1150, and I know they're a third-party you know, eBook software developer, but I have from my impression is that they, most of their um, business was with corporate customers, so it's really kind of hard to say what they're doing because um, no one really wants to talk about the, you know, their trade secrets. Um, uh, one question I wanted to ask you was about, um, reading serial fiction on phones and micropayments. Um, something that's, as I understand it is huge in China, um, but hasn't really caught on to the same degree elsewhere, uh, including in, in particular in North America. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that. Well, I'm still doubtful that it's really, you know, huge in China, given that, given how unimportant it is in the U.S., it could be just be different markets, but I've never really understood what the appeal. Um, I can do, you know, serial reading just by uh, closing the ebook app and then pick, opening it up again next week and continuing the story I'm reading. I mean, I don't understand. Hmm. Of course, what's interesting is that it does have some, you know, traction in the U.S. market, um, we're about to reach the end of 2017, um, and I was wondering uh, what you think was maybe one of the most important or exciting developments that you wrote about on the Digital Reader this year. I don't know. I think this has actually been a pretty quiet year for ebook news. So, most exciting? Oh, I'm excited by the new Kindle Oasis. It's a little bigger screen. It's a it's the kind of e-reader I've always wanted. In fact, it's kind of like a couple I've had before, only now with the Kindle. And it's the uh, it's the bigger screen primarily. Yeah, it's a seven-inch screen. The neat thing about a seven-inch screen or an eight-inch screen is that it's it's closer to being a hardback size uh, screen than the six-inch Kindle, which is more like a paperback. And you know, being able to hold it in one hand, it's it's a really cool feature. 
about three four years ago, I bought an ebook reader called the Pocketbook Ink Book, or Ink Pad actually, and that had an eight inch e-ink screen and a one-handed design, and it was a really nice device. Software wasn't quite there, but it was really nice hardware. Um, speaking of uh, events in 2017 as well, um, you wrote recently about currently what is still simply a proposed uh, new tax plan um, in the U.S. and how it might potentially affect authors. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that issue. Yes, Congress is currently working on a um, changes to the U.S. tax law. It's going to well, it's going to essentially raise almost everyone's income tax, and and aside from you know the very wealthy, we're going to get a tax cut. And it's really hard to say how it's going to affect authors, but it looks like we're going to be losing a number of deductions, which I, as an independent professional, I also use, and so I'm a little unhappy about that. Yeah, and um, I one thing I. I gather is that um, one thing one can do if one's an you know independently operating professional is is set up a sort of pass through structure, um, and I wanted to ask you just given your all your interaction with authors self published authors is that something that they conventionally do in the United States? Not that I know of. I've I know of a handful of authors who have, but I don't know how. I never really pulled them on their you know um, business organization or. You know, accounting practices. So, you know, the one from what I've seen, most do not. But I could just be, you know, you know, missing the relevant data. Yeah, it's it's it's. Thanks for thanks for that. Um, it's it's um, it's a curious thing. I mean, in the in the world of you know advice to self-published authors, it's just something I I was once I thought about it, I was surprised I'd never seen it. That the kind of tax side of things is something that people don't really talk about all that much, even though, you know, it could potentially be pretty important. <laughs> um, one of the curious things about the book publishing industry in general is that um, it doesn't really make headlines all that much, um, except, you know, maybe with the odd store closure or store opening or a big move, you know, by Amazon. Um, but one of the things that does make the headlines is when news is released about print book versus ebook sales data. Um, and often, unfortunately, at least in my opinion, even the big papers seem to misinterpret this data pretty badly. Um, in particular, what they do is they'll take data from just a sort of segment of the book publishing world and then make declarations, you know, as though this applies, as though we know this applies to the entire book publishing world. Um, and I was wondering if um, for our listeners, you could maybe explain a little bit about what's going on there. Well, the problem... Mm. The problem is the uh, news media is um, far too invested in getting a story out right now, so they take the latest um, sliver of data from just one month or from one quarter, and they make proclamations about the market being up, market being down, and so on and so forth. When, as you say, they're you know it's not just that they're taking 
um, from one segment, as you say. It's also that they're you know picking from just one single report from the AAP or one single report from the um, from Great Britain's Publisher Association. And what's really frustrating about this, as you know, uh, you know, a numbers guy might, as a numbers guy, what I find really frustrating is that that is out there that they could, um, they could, if they wanted to, understand what's really going on. Yet they don't bother. Yeah, I, I just, I, I, I find it frustrating myself as well. Um, you know, in particular to see, you know, news organizations that you might associate with normally a high quality of work. Um, Somehow, when it comes to the book industry, it it, it just seems that uh, it often seems that. Well, I mean, um, Matthew Ingram once used the delight, delight, delightful digital Schadenfreude every time there's an opportunity to represent what's happening with digital reading as being, you know, backwards steps. And there seems to be just a deep uh, desire for good news about print book sales generally. With some publications, that's true. Yes, uh, the Guardian, the Guardian wants to convince us that ebook sales are down, and they'll take every opportunity they can. Which is when oh, this was back in June, but when the um, Publishers Association in the Great Britain, in Great Britain, when the PA released their annual report, um, the Guardian cited that data five times in 15 days. And I'm not kidding. I actually, you know, linked to found all the stories and counted. They cited it five times to convince us that ebooks are dying. But then again, for most news organizations, news organizations, it's not that um, they want to proclaim ebooks are down. They just, you know, want to do the cruise story right now, and boom, done. Move on to the next story. Yeah, actually, this gets to the heart of something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, uh, just with respect to you know ebook and digital reading. Um, as a as a practice um i remember back in the days in the early 90s um when people started to talk more about you know reading on computers and what it meant and there were you know courses on things like hypertext um and it was around that time that at least i first started noticing a certain maybe we'll call it a a genre of writing about reading um that invoked a negative contrast between reading on screens versus reading on paper, uh, in, in negative contrast in favor of reading on paper. And I mean, it wasn't just, it was maybe just last week that I, you know, saw yet another article in the New York Times where someone talks about how, was talking about how, you know, real reading involves this sensory experience where you, you know, sniff the paper and touch the paper and hold the paper. Um, and, uh, I was wondering what your thoughts are about that. Is that is that a contrast that we're just going to have to uh, live with forever? I mean, it's you know 2017, and people are still saying it's not real reading unless you're sniffing uh, at the same time. Yeah, I've always enjoyed those because I know that the people who are saying that there's not real reading unless you're also sniffing the paper are typing up that report on a computer and editing it on a computer, and they're getting their news on their smartphone when all this involves reading. So I guess it's not really reading. Yeah. There's an inherent contradiction to what they're, between what they're doing and what they're proclaiming, and I just enjoy the, that thought. <laughs> yeah, me, uh, me too. Um, uh, and, and I guess, I mean, do you have any thoughts about where this 
this comes from? I mean, what what's the kind of I don't know psychological complex behind uh, uh, a resentment um, that drives this? You know, digital Schadenfreude, or you know, people get really people get really worked up about their their paper. I just think it's I just see it as a lot of itism. I don't know. I would call it a complex. It's just preferring to stick to the what they have the the old stuff rather than considering how the new might be better. But it's I think it's you how you described it that um these are people who are mistaking the food for the plate. They're thinking the I'm of the I'm agree with I think that was you Howie, but I could be wrong. I'm of the view that it's not is the content that matters, not the material the content is on. Which that's why I like ebooks so much. Uh, yeah, um, uh, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Um, you know, one thing um, I've found curious is that often people who talk about the you know smell of the paper uh, don't seem to. Uh, they don't seem to really be interested. There's something. There's something beyond simply the the reading and what the writer is writing about that seems to be at stake for them in the act of reading itself. And I think it's related, perhaps, to a display. Um, I mean, I mean, a putting on a personal display. So, for example, one thing that people often find frustrating is that, well, you know, you, you well, I mean, think about the the, the uh, common image of you know, if a, if a lawyer wants to look smart. Uh, or a politician wants to look smart, they sit in front of a bookcase, uh, you know, often behind a desk. Um, uh, and there's something about the invisibility of the books that you're reading that presents itself to them as a kind of lack or something that's been been taken away. But, you know, that's... So it's kind of books or reading as a status symbol. And since you can't have that with e-books, they don't like e-books. Yeah, and that there's, there's yeah, exactly. And that there's a, there's a kind of, when they're, and I'm not saying this is a criticism, it's just so different that when they, when people like that sit down to read, there's this whole ritual that's coming along with it. Um, and I think it's just different types of people. I mean, for me personally, when I'm sitting down to read, I'm really interested in what, you know, I'm reading, the the subject. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps the linguistic aesthetics and the intellectual aesthetic um, that you can encounter when you're, you know, say, you know, the difference between reading Henry James or Mark Twain. Um, but I just, the, 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 the aspect of that experience that involves, um, paper and smells, uh, just really doesn't mean anything to me. In fact, you know, I, I preferred, I prefer to read hands-free. Um, and if you're doing research, you know, all that, all that paper and that book gets in the way. Uh, and it brings with it um, a, an expense and a scarcity that, uh, you know, violate my desires for uh, having access to more words. Mm, yes. Yeah. So I guess, and, and, you know, in that, if that's, if that's all, if there really is that difference between people, then I guess we are going to be, um, you know, just stuck with this difference um, forever. Um, looking ahead, um, is there anything you see? Uh, technology-wise um, coming in the next year that people should be looking forward to or, or, or dreading? I'm, I'm not so good at making those kind of predictions. I, I don't see anything coming, no. Well, at least not in this area. I have, um, I have my concerns about, say, Kindle Unlimited and 
But aside from that, no. Oh, what's what's your concern about that? There's it's it's become well the problem with Kindle Unlimited is well some publishers hate it because it's such a huge chunk of the market and um, they don't want to have to give up that much control to Amazon. But my concern is that um, Amazon keeps um, losing the battle with scammers who keep finding new ways to to you know cheat their way to the top of the Kindle Store's bestseller ranks and. They know how to figure out how to cheat Amazon out of money, and I just well, my concern isn't Amazon so much as the the authors who keep getting caught up in Amazon's actions against the scammers, and I just from what I've seen, it's being get worse and worse. Yeah, this is a really interesting um, topic actually, and it's it's a bit in the weeds, but it's actually very important to um, self-published authors who are part of Kindle Unlimited. So Kindle Unlimited is a subscription service um, and authors, and please correct me, Nate, because I'm sure you understand this better than I do. Please correct me if I get anything wrong, but um, authors make money from a collective pool made available yeah. by Amazon. And then, so with this collective pool, um, then Amazon has to decide how is it going to divvy that up amongst the various authors um, who've put their books up on the service. And that in itself brings all kinds of crazy complications and questions of fairness. Um, and I, the, the solution that Amazon is current, has currently lighted upon is to base payments on page reads. Um, and so this system, with all of its other problems, invites um, scammers uh, who just love thinking about ways of gaming systems like that. And uh, one of the tricks that they use uh, is um, they'll put a link to the back of the book in the front of the book, or at least they used to. And then what, what Amazon would do is say, hey, you know, some, they, would, they, would just, they would count the pages read by the highest number page that had been sort of looked at by the reader. And so by putting a link from the front of the book in the, to the back of the book, scammers could make it look like, you know, someone, they, they would get 400 page reads from that single action. Yes, that's a problem. Amazon almost has a solution to that, but it doesn't quite work yet. But we're, the new solution is to actually count the actual pages being read, but rather than the location in an ebook. But it's that Amazon had released that as a change to Kindle Unlimited, but then pulled it back because I guess it wasn't working. And um, another but, one of the problems is that. Oh, sorry. Please go on. No, that's okay. Um, another one of the uh, problems is that, and this isn't necessarily based on bad decisions by Amazon, just it's inherent in the system, is that um, because, you know, there's money at stake, uh, and this is not just true for Kindle Unlimited, but it's also true for people gaming the system to get on the bestseller lists and things like that. Um, one consequence is that Amazon has to be constantly policing the negative behavior. And actually, uh, legitimate authors can get caught up in that net. Yes. Um, can you think of any examples of that happening uh, relatively recently? I think there was something about Goodreads. Well, there is. Um, over the past few months, Amazon has been. Was, I think it started about four or five months ago. Amazon adopted a policy of whenever they think a book's being, uh, whenever they think the the publisher of a book is or the author, whoever is cheating in the Kindle store, they'll um, de-rank a book. 
they'll strip the ranks so it won't show up in the bestseller list. Um, this costs, you know, sales, and it also costs, you know, you know, it costs sales and, you know, missing word here, um, publicity and so on and so forth. And the problem is, I've, I've heard from way too many authors who it's just they haven't, they weren't cheating at all. It was Amazon just tied them by mistake. Right now, what we don't know is whether um, Amazon can't identify the scammers or if maybe the scammers are using those authors as camouflage and Amazon, you know, hit the camouflage rather than the scammer. It's a problem. The, the real problem with Kindle Unlimited is that it's only going to work as long as everyone thinks it's honest and Amazon treats authors, everyone thinks that Amazon treats authors well. Once that changes, it's going to die. I mean, well, if, not once. Right. Right. Um, given the, um, uh, you know, risks and problems involved in getting into, let's not just say Kindle Unlimited, but any kind of subscription service, uh, is it something that you would recommend authors think hard about before they get into it? Or is it just, you know, that's just a convention that we've all got to um, accommodate ourselves to? It's worth considering. Um, Kindle Unlimited is, I think, over $170 million a year now at the market. I think it's over 200 now. But that's an awful lot of money, and it's all being paid out directly to well, the author or whoever's uploaded the ebook to Kindle Unlimited. And that's a lot of money there. So, yes, they should consider it. Um, speaking of money and, and channels, um, one of the uh, un, perhaps unresolvable questions for self-published authors is, should I put all my eggs in one basket or should I put all my eggs in many baskets? And by that, I mean, the question is, you know, if you've, if you've got a book that you've written and you want to, or, or multiple books that you've written and you want to, uh, you've got to pick a marketing strategy should you put them all in one place and direct all your marketing towards that one place? Or should you um, put your book up for sale in many different places, hoping you get more attention that way? Um, what do you think? What, what do you think about that? Well, that? The Amazon sponsored answer is that yes, you should put all your eggs in one basket. <laughs> Sorry, just a joke there. No, no, yeah. um, well, David um, Gochran has shown us that if you do go exclusive with Amazon, you can, you know, get all the sale, get all the reviews from one place, get all the sales from one place, and get uh, you can achieve a higher rank if you go exclusive. I still don't think it's a good idea to, you know, put all your eggs in one basket. I think authors should go wide because you don't know where you're going to find an audience, and if you limit yourself to the Kindle store, then you're missing out on the chance of selling a lot of books through iBooks or through Kobo. Or, well, for example, Nook, for example. Um, Nook is, you know, isn't selling nearly as many ebooks as it was three years ago, but it still has a sizable erotica. Um, it sells a lot of erotica ebooks, I'm told. That's what I've been hearing from authors. Yeah, that, that's, that's really interesting. I, hadn't, I, didn't, I didn't know about that. Um, uh, and um, when it comes to putting up 
uh, you know, uh, your, your book and, or your books in, in many different places. Um, do you have any particular thoughts on things like Facebook advertising and stuff like that? Is that something that you think authors should spend time looking into? Um, advertising is almost uh, de rigueur now. It's almost something they have to do if they want to make a lot of sales. Because if, well, if they're not advertising, someone else will be. And so it's a keeping up with the Joneses problem. So yeah, they need to look into advertising. Um, my last question um, before we go uh, is uh, as one of your followers on Twitter, um, I and uh, I know that um, you are an animal lover, um, and you have a number of different pets. People may have heard dogs and parakeets in the background um, during this interview, uh, and I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that uh, personal item. Um, what what pets do you do you live with? Well, we have three dogs of our own. We're also a foster with a dog rescue called A Forever Home. So right now I also have a mom and her seven puppies. Oh, wow. Yes. It's a little messy. But a little crowded, but they're they're so cute. I also have several birds, a cockatiel called Conrad and a cage full of parakeets. (laughs) And as you may know from Twitter, I also have a bearded dragon called Puff. A a what? Bearded dragon. Okay. Yes. I I rescued him from a pet store. Okay. Okay. And um, uh, do you have spiders as well? Yes. I keep a a few tarantulas. A few? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm just going to leave it a few, otherwise no one will ever visit me again. (laughs) Do you ever take... I'm curious. I'm I'm, uh, not a spider fan. Um, uh, And I'm just curious, do do you take them out? of their, I, I assume they live in an aquarium or something like that. They live in their own aquariums, yes. And I, I don't take them out, it's just, it's too risky, because if they get spooked and they jump and they hit the floor, they'll go splat. Right. And so I, I don't handle them. Well, uh, Nate, uh, thanks for thanks for sharing that. Uh, I really appreciate that. And thanks for um, sharing all your thoughts on my relatively random assortment of, of questions about, um, you know, digital reading and and the book publishing industry. I really appreciate uh, your thoughts and your time. Thanks. uh, Thanks for having me, Len. Thanks. Thanks also to everyone listening. This is the part where I ask you to please like this episode and this podcast on iTunes or wherever you found it, if you did enjoy it. As all podcasters say, it really does help other people discover and enjoy the show. If you have any feedback or would like to suggest a guest for the show, please email us at backmatter at leanpub.com.